0: Uh, you can turn to Psalm 130 this morning if you have your Bibles with you. That's where we're going to be uh, throughout this morning. I am starting a three-part series uh, called Worth the Wait, where, where we take a look at uh, this idea, this theme of waiting that seems to come up often in Scripture. Uh, it's kind of a, it might seem like a I don't want to say disjointed series, but uh, I'm preaching once uh, in October, once in November, once in December uh, as part of kind of the transition from Keith to me. And uh, one of the things I've found is I think it's hard for me to just try to preach kind of a one-and-done sermon uh, it just seems so broad. To, what, what do I pick to preach on? Uh, and so uh, I try to weave things together as much as I can. And, and so I thought, okay, we'll make three sermons kind of hopefully fit together, even though they're going to be far apart. So they'll each be a month apart, but, but worth the wait looking at this theme, this idea of waiting and, and how it shows up throughout scripture. One of the things that I would say universally happens in our lives And one of the things that we universally dislike is waiting. I I got a notice in the mail, probably three months ago now, that I need to renew my license by October 30th, about 13 days away from that. I still have not done that. Not just because I procrastinate, although that's somewhat true. But because I really, 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 really don't feel like going to the DMV and sitting and waiting for an hour to renew my license. One of of the things that I would guess happens, maybe even subconsciously to you when you go to the grocery store and you approach the checkout lines is you evaluate which line is the shortest and even maybe count or estimate how many groceries does everyone have in their cart in each line. Because you're trying to figure out which one will get me through the quickest. And if you choose the right line, it, it feels like you won a competition in some way, right? because you saved a a minute or two minutes, maybe, max. Why? Because we don't like to wait, and and not waiting feels like we've won. As I've grown older, excuse me, I've realized that I like amusement parks less and less because I no longer associate amusement parks with fun rides so much, but with waiting in lines. Like, I, I hear someone say, uh, I'm going to go to an amusement park tomorrow. And what I, what I really hear them saying is, I'm going to go pay 50 bucks to wait in line all day tomorrow. And, and I think what really did it for me was I, when I was dating Bree, we went to a Six Flags in New Jersey. And we went on maybe nine to ten rides max that entire day. And the rest of the day was waiting. Felt like we, we've just spent our whole day waiting here waiting this side of heaven for us most of life is spent waiting in some way we we wait in lines we wait in traffic we wait for a friend who's running late we wait for customer service we wait for a table at our favorite place to eat we wait in all sorts of other ways but those aren't the difficult waitings really they might be annoying but they're not the difficult waitings See, we also wait for deep desires we have, for good things, good things that maybe for years on end go unmet or maybe never get met. We, we wait to find a spouse. We wait for a child or another child. We wait for a loved one or a friend to come to Christ. We wait for a job after losing a job. We wait to find out, what am I going to do next with my life? Where is God directing me with my life now? We wait for a home. We wait for a prodigal child to come home. We, we wait for some f- freedom from f- some sin. We wait to be more like Christ when we feel like there's such a gap there. There are all sorts of good desires we have in this life that we wait for never knowing if they'll come true. Never knowing. This side of heaven most of life is spent waiting. And we can think, we might have this tendency to think that we'll we'll get to this place in this life where our waiting will stop, where we'll no longer be waiting for something or someone. But the reality tends to be that as soon as we stop waiting in one area of our lives, there's soon another season of waiting that's right around the corner. And as Christians, we'd say, all along, we're waiting for Christ's return, no matter what. This side of heaven, most of life is spent waiting. And we've good company If you read the pages of scripture, we've got good company in our waiting. Abraham waited 25 years for a son. Joseph waited 13 years as a slave and in prison. Israel waited hundreds of years in slavery for God to come save them. Moses waited 40 years to see the promised land and then died on the edge of it. Ruth waited for a husband. Hannah waited for a child. David waited 15 years to become king after he was anointed. Israel waited 70 years in exile. The prophets waited hundreds of years for Christ to come. And now the church has waited almost 2,000 years for Christ to return. This side of heaven, most of life is spent waiting in some way. And I would guess for a significant number of you here this morning, you can point to something in your life that you're waiting for even now. Some area in your life that you're waiting even now. And maybe it's a very acutely painful waiting. Maybe it is a uh, waiting that's happened for years, or maybe it's just multiple areas that you're waiting and it's kind of a background noise to your life. And so when we come to the Psalms, it's good that we find language for everything we face in this life, including our waiting. And this is especially true of Psalm 130. We'll pick up in verse 1 and read the whole Psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Father, our eyes are on you this morning. You are enthroned in the heavens. As eyes of servants on their master, we look to you to show us mercy. We look to you to speak to us this morning. We look to you to encourage us, to lift us up. We look to you to convict us where we need to be convicted. God, we look for you to satisfy us, with yourself. And I pray that by your spirit you would do those things and many more throughout our time together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we we look at the challenge of waiting this morning, the main thing that I would say I, I want us to see is that in our waiting we should run to God because he is at work in your waiting. Run to God because he is at work in your waiting. Here's what Betsy Childs Howard says in her book, Seasons of Waiting. We can allow our waiting to drive us from God or to drive us to him. Our burdens exist to make us lean all our weight upon the Lord. That's exactly what I'd say the psalmist is doing in this psalm. Leaning all of his weight, his full weight upon the Lord as he waits for God, as he waits for God to act, as he waits for God to come near. And so I think if we look back at the first two, two verses, we might be able to say that we, we should allow the helplessness of our waiting to strengthen our dependence. That we should allow the helplessness of our waiting to strengthen our dependence. Waiting for something puts us in a position where we feel helpless, where, where we in many ways feel unable to ultimately make our waiting stop. I mean, think about it even just in kind of the the small ways, the dumb ways we wait. Uh, Try as you might, we can't make that line at the grocery store go any faster by glaring at the cashier or the person who has 50 items in the 25 item or less line. We can't make traffic move any faster by honking our horn, shaking our head, or throwing our arms up in the air. Wait, waiting gives us this sense of helplessness. I'm depending on someone else in the midst of my waiting. And we, we see from this psalm, as we look at these first two verses, that first of all, waiting can make us desperate. And even if it doesn't make us desperate, it makes us dependent in some way. Look back at verse 1 and what the psalmist's first words are. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Oh Lord, hear my voice. This is not the request of someone who's sitting comfortably by the fire asking for a cup of coffee. This is the request of someone who feels like they're drowning. This is not a nice, neat, put-together prayer. This is a crying, confused, on-the-ropes prayer. I mean, I think of the, the picture we could have of a prayer like this. This is not a little girl who's asking for her mom and dad to come play with her. This is a little girl lost in the midst of a big grocery store, crying out for mommy or daddy to come get her and help her. That, that's the type of picture you can get from these first verses. Oh Lord, out of the depths I cry to you. Hear my voice. Hear my voice. As you find yourself waiting for something in this life, it can make you desperate at times. And that desperation isn't necessarily a bad thing if it makes us lean our weight on, run to God. Waiting can also make you lonely. I mean, catch the tone of the second verse there. Oh, Lord... Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Do do you catch the tone of that, right? God, do you hear me? Is what I'm saying getting through to you? I mean, it can feel lonely as we wait. Perhaps even lonely and we wonder, has God left us alone? Think about the, the loneliness of someone who attends yet another wedding as they wait for a spouse. The loneliness of someone who walks through some deep suffering feeling like no one else gets what I'm going through this moment. The, the loneliness of someone who hears about yet another pregnancy as they wait for a child. The, the loneliness of someone who wrestles with some sinner temptation and feels like no one else must struggle with this. Waiting can leave us feeling alone, even wondering, does God hear me in the midst of this? And so it is a comfort to us as we cry out in the midst of that to be reminded God is not blind and he is not deaf, that he sees us in the midst of our waiting and has not abandoned us or left us alone. Here would be the, in some ways, takeaway out of this first point, that to cry out to God in the midst of our waiting is an act of faith that's pleasing to him to cry out to god in the midst of our waiting is an act of faith that's pleasing to him here's what charles spurgeon says about these first verses he says it little it little matters where we are if we can pray but prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places deep places beget deep devotion Depths of earnestness are stirred by depths of tribulation. The more distressed we are, the more excellent is the faith which trusts bravely in the Lord and therefore appeals to him and to him alone. Read that last line again. The more distressed we are, the more excellent is the faith which trusts bravely in the Lord and therefore appeals to him and to him alone. To cry out to God, in the midst of our depths, whatever that may be, is a great act of faith. Because it says, though I don't know what God is doing, though I don't know why I'm waiting, how long I will wait, I believe that there is a God who cares for me, a father who hears every last one of my cries. Uh, A guy by the name of Nathan Fox talks about walking through a Romanian orphanage for the first time. And he talks about how, like, eerie in some ways it was and, and sad. Because he, he, he says this quote. He says the most remarkable thing about the infant room was how quiet it was. Probably because the infants had learned that their cries were not responded to. That's the end of his quote. You think about that. They've come to the conclusion no one's going to hear my cries, no one cares enough to respond to me, so I'm not going to cry anymore. That the very act of a child crying declares in some way, there is someone out there who cares for me. And though I may not see them right now, I believe that, and so I'm going to cry out. And that's the same type of childlike faith that pleases God when we cry out in our waiting, confused, not knowing what's going on, not knowing what he's doing, And yet by our very cry saying, there is a God who cares for me and I will not stop crying out to him. That in our desperation, in our waiting, we lean our weight on him. We strengthen our dependence on him. So we see the psalmist doing in these first couple of verses. And next we see him processing through some of his beliefs, I would say, in verse 3 and 4. Let's pick up there. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We should allow the confusion of our waiting to clarify our beliefs. Anyone who's waited for something significant or for a long period of time for a good thing knows that that can be confusing for a good desire that God is not meeting, there's, the, there, there's some confusion to that. Again, Bet- Betsy uh, Childs Howard says it this way in that book. Sometimes it seems like the deepest desires are the ones that God forgets. That's confusing. I've got this deep desire and, and God's not meeting. Why? What's going on here? And so we sometimes respond by maybe trying to fit the puzzle pieces together. What's, what's he doing here? i got to make sense of this. I have to figure out why I'm waiting. And, and often that doesn't work. And maybe a better thing to do is just clarify, what, what do I believe in the midst of this? What do I believe both about myself, but about this God that I'm trusting in? Do, do we believe that God's hand can be forced? The longer that we have to wait for something... And maybe even a really good thing. And the more that we look around and see other people who get that good thing, the more prone we are to think or feel, God owes me this. We might not say that out loud, but the more like as we look around, we think, I I want this is a good thing. Everyone else is get God, you owe me this. Or or maybe we we think, um, if I just learn whatever lesson God's trying to teach me in the midst of this, He'll make my waiting stop. Or or we think, if I just do the right things in response, I pray, I trust him, I love other people, God will make this waiting go away. There's this tendency in us to think that we can move God's hand, force his hand, based on something in us or something that we do. And the psalmist just undercuts that in verse three, where he says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, keep track of our sins, Observe them, treat us according to them. Oh Lord, who could stand? And you know, that's a, that's a rhetorical question with the answer being no one. No one. We, we have no ground to ever be able to stand on and say, God, you owe me this because of something in me. We, we can no more force God's hand to give us some good thing than we can force his hand to forgive us of sins. And to say that I'm... Sinful is to say that there's nothing I can do to force God's hand to give me this. But maybe we we believe that, but on the flip side then we we think, perhaps God just doesn't care about me. Maybe that's why this is happening. I know I can't force him, but perhaps because he's not acting, that, that shows that he doesn't care about me. Do we believe that God's heart is cold and unmoved to us? the the painful seasons of waiting in your life, my life, make it very easy for us to doubt and question God's care. That perhaps we think he's more like a distant, aloof relative who knows who we are, maybe stops in occasionally, but really doesn't care about the details of our lives or pay attention to us. But listen to how the psalmist describes God in verse 4 and then again in verse 7 with you there is forgiveness with the lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption he's reminding us god is not distant and uncaring with god there's forgiveness so that we might draw near to him and enjoy him with god there's steadfast love that he is unswervingly committed we say we have an unswerving commitment to the next generation we swerve at times, let's be honest. We don't do everything we can to reach the next generation. God is unswervingly committed to his people and to their good, never swerving from that. Steadfast love, loyalty, commitment to us. So it says, with him is plentiful redemption. He's not stingy in redemption, paying to save us from sin and then not caring about anything else. No, he pays the great price to save us from sin and then also redeems every aspect of our lives, including the ones that are most painful and confusing and difficult for us. To remember that this is who God is, forgiving, steadfast in love, plentiful in redemption, and we could add other things to that as well, is to remember that he has a purpose in our waiting, even if we may never see it or understand it. To remember that this is who God is, good, period. It's to remember that he has a purpose in whatever waiting we find ourselves, even if we may never grasp it or understand it or remain confused. Uh, I told you I I flew out to California, or my family went out to California to visit my brother uh, who lives out there in his family. And so this was the, the second time that we flew with my son. And so we flew out of Baltimore, our plan was to have a connecting flight in Denver. Uh, and so we got to Baltimore, got through check-in, got through security, feeling a little bit stressed, but calming down as we make it to our gate. And when we get to our gate, I find out our flight's been delayed by five minutes. Thinking, no big deal, five minutes. That's not long at all. Uh, we've got plenty of time. We're definitely gonna make our connecting flight. We'll have time to get a food there, sit, relax. Well, it d- delayed another five minutes, another 10 minutes, another five minutes. Again and again and again. Until we were up to 45 minutes total. Still like getting stressed, wondering, okay, is this gonna stop? Uh, Are we gonna make it? But still realizing, okay, it's all right, we've got time. And they they started to board the plane thinking, okay, we're good, no big deal. Uh, We board the plane, everyone's on the plane. We sit down in our seats, everyone's seated. And we proceed to wait without moving for another hour. Uh, My wife had bought all sorts of new toys for my son to play with. Thinking that like this is a good way to distract him on the flight. By the end of an hour, he's through all those toys. Uh, I'm getting stressed with each passing minute. Like we're gonna miss our flight in Denver. What what are we? We're gonna be stuck in Denver. Uh, We've got a we've got a infant or a toddler here. What what are we gonna do? Thinking what 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 is this pilot doing? Like he is not making a good impression. Does he not know his job is to get us out of here and to our next flight? We found out. Later, uh, the reason why we didn't move, the reason why the pilot did not take off or leave our terminal is because they were still loading our baggage onto the plane. Rather than that pilot being lousy at what he was doing, not caring about us, wasting his time in front, he was actually more committed to us than we realized. He was a very good pilot, right? Who says, I'm not going to take off and get them to where they're supposed to be if they don't have all their baggage on here as well. Rather than him not caring to us, he was committed to us. He was doing a good job. It's very easy in our waiting to think that God is failing to do his job, right? But rather than failing to do his job, in our waiting, God is just as committed to us, just as committed to doing all that he wants in us, to providing us with all that we need to get to where he wants us to be. God is no less committed to us when we're waiting than when we're not waiting. And another thing that we see here, I think too, is that God's forgiveness, his grace to us, is actually meant to lead us to fear him. Maybe you picked up on that in verse four. He says, but with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. That sounds kind of odd when you stop to think about it. God, God loves us, forgives us, is gracious so that we might fear him? What type of fear is that? Because obviously we're not fearing judgment. God has forgiven us. What what is this fear? This is is the fear. This is kind of the hand over the mouth all that God would care for us. It's, It's the fear that recognizes how big and awesome God is, how small and sinful we are, and yet how committed God is to us. That's the type of fear this is. And that's the type of fear that can help us in the midst of our waiting when all sorts of other fears might pop up of an unknown future. Fears like, what if I never find another job? What if I never find a spouse? What if I never have a child? What if I never get healed from this? What if the loved one never comes back or never comes to the Lord? What if like those fears can, can feel overwhelming, right? They can crush us. And instead God's saying, don't, don't fear those things. Fear me, the one who is forgiving, steadfast in love, plentiful in redemption, not just now, but 20 years from now and thousands of years from now. Fear me, the one that you can know and not some unknown future out there based on your waiting. See, to, to fear God is a way to combat all our other fears in the midst of our waiting. The, the psalmist in verses 1 through 4 has been talking to God, and now in verses 5 through 6, he switches, and it seems like he is almost more just talking to himself. And, and here's what he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. There's this almost tension there of I'm waiting for God. I'm hoping in him. My soul is waiting for him. See, there's this tension to waiting in our lives. And I would say, we should allow the tension of waiting to balance our hopes. Anyone who's waited for something good in this life knows that there's a tension there. To hope and wait for a good thing not knowing if or when that thing will ever happen or come. Here's uh, how a person named Courtney Doctor puts it in a quote. God never promises that our seasons of waiting will end by receiving exactly what we want. Not all infertility ends with a baby. Not all cancer ends with a cure. Not all singleness ends with a spouse, which means that our hope can't be anchored in the thing we're waiting for. Our hope has to be anchored in something far greater, the promises and the character of God. And this is what we find the psalmist saying, right? Wait, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Here's the tension, that we continue to hope for things in this life, good things, gifts from God, that we may never receive. Even as we remind ourselves, our ultimate hope is not in those things, whether God gives them or not, but in God himself. That is a hard line to walk at times. If you felt the difficulty of that, of like, how do I hope for this, but also not put my final hope in that, that's a hard line to walk. You're you're not alone in wrestling with, how do I walk this line, this tension of where my hopes lie? And how can we seek to walk that line well? I think the psalmist would first of all show us that we lay, we put our hope in God's word as we call out for our desires. And the psalmist tells us, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Yes, we continue to cry out to God for our desires, asking that he might meet them, asking that he might give us a good thing. And yet we say, we hope in you, We hope in your word even if we never get those things. We anchor our hope in God's word. What does it say about him? He's good, period. He's merciful, period. He's gracious, period. He's powerful, period. We believe that what his word says about him is true even when our waiting makes us wonder if it is. What does he promise to do? That's true no matter what doesn't promise to give us all that we want, but he promises lots of things in scripture, ultimately, that he would satisfy us with himself. God promises mostly to give us himself. And so we hope for God more than we hope for anything else. The, the psalmist describes his waiting for the Lord like a watchman who's waiting for the morning, right? And says it twice to just kind of drive it home. I wait for you more than watchmen for the morning. You think about a city that is being threatened by enemy attacks. And a watchman will be posted on the walls or the tower, looking out throughout the entire night, looking for signs of how the enemy might attack. And and think about just what that would feel like. Alone, out in the dark, constantly looking for signs of threat or attack. The type of fear that might bring, the type of despair that might bring in the middle of the night as you're just waiting and how comforting it would be then as the sun rises. He's relieved of his post. Okay, done. And the psalmist says, that, that's like how I'm waiting for the Lord. Waiting for him. Not waiting for him to just give me what I want, but waiting for him himself. That in our waiting in this life, although God doesn't promise to give us what we want, he promises to give us himself. And God is not a consolation prize. God is not a second-place trophy. It's not as if we say, well, if I don't get what I am longing for, I guess I still have God. God is the prize in our waiting. Whether we get what we want or not, if we get him, then our waiting has been worth it. If we get more of his comfort, more of his grace, more of his presence in Christ, that is the prize to our waiting. Our hope is in him finally. Even as we lay our desires before him, he will satisfy us. Which means we worship while we wait. We worship while we wait. Verses one through four, Psalmist is talking to God. Verses five through six, seems like he's talking to himself in some ways. Verses seven through eight, he's talking to all God's people. And he says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. What's he saying? Looking out to God's people, saying, praise God, hope in him, he's good no matter what. Don't wait until you're done waiting to worship him. Praise him, hope in him. He will redeem you, he will redeem you. Take care of you. Worship in the waiting. Um, Almost every summer, there is a video clip from America's Got Talent that ends up bringing me to tears in some way. Uh, The stories they can tell, the way that they can weave it together, I think are incredible. Uh, And so it, it seems like every summer that happens. And this past summer, it was the story of Jane Markzewski, also known as Nightbird, Who's 30 years old, and probably some of you have seen this. Uh, She walks across an empty stage looking small and frail. And as the judges are asking her questions, uh, it comes to light that she's had multiple bouts with cancer. And she reveals uh, right now in this moment that she has cancer in her lungs, her spine, and her liver. And what she doesn't say, but what you can find out by digging a little bit deeper, is actually in the midst of her cancer, her husband left her. And then the the music comes on in the background. And you see this smile break across her face as she actually looks up to the sky. And she starts to sing this beautiful song that's called It's Okay. And once the song ends, you can see the judges as they're processing, like, how did this beautiful song come out of someone who is suffering so deeply in the midst of this moment? And one of the things that she says as they're talking back and forth is she says, you can't wait until life isn't hard anymore until you decide to be happy. And that's the line that kind of gets me. Because her life is so hard just as I have no doubt that some of your lives here this morning feel so hard or will be so hard at some point. And yet there she is saying, I have joy even as I wait for things to get better, not knowing if those things will even get better. Like that's a hope and a joy that is shocking in some ways, that catches people off guard. And what's interesting is if you dig a little bit you can find the root and the source of that hope and joy in her it's God because in another interview as she talks about her experience she says I believe God can heal in one instant I also believe that no good thing does he withhold you hear that I believe God can make my waiting stop now and I believe if he doesn't no good thing does he withhold And in a blog post, she she writes this at one point. When it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He is more a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness. He adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure me of my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean that God is far. See, she's like the psalmist saying, O God's children, hope in the Lord. He is good. He is steadfast in love. Praise him. Worship him while you're waiting. And so too, we're called to worship him while we're waiting. How how do we go about that? I believe the psalm actually can provide us with a framework of how we worship God in our waiting, if we look back through. That first of all, we cry cry out to God, laying our honest desires, our heart's desires before him. And then we trust, believing that he's good. No good thing does he withhold, even if he withholds whatever we're desiring in this life. And then we hope. We continue to ask God to meet our desires while also saying, my final hope is in you and that you give me yourself. And then we praise that we declare what is true of our God, even in the moments of darkest waiting. And we don't do that once, but we do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Because the waiting often doesn't stop very quickly. And so we worship while we wait, crying, trusting, hoping, praising. But we should ask the question what compels us to cry out to God? even when it feels like he doesn't hear us? What, what compels us to trust him, even when we're utterly confused with our lives and what he's up to? What compels us to put our hope in him, even as we face disappointment, after disappointment in this life? What compels us to praise him when life feels dark? I, I think of what, what would compel me, to go back to the beginning, to go wait in line for two hours to ride some amusement park ride. Not just wait, but wait like with a sense of joy. If someone I knew and trusted came to me and said, it's worth the wait. Every last second of it is worth the wait. And here's one of the beautiful things about the Psalms. These are the Psalms that we would say we believe Jesus sung during his time on earth. And they're the songs that he now leads us to sing himself. See, Jesus cried out to his father in the moment of his darkest need. And we don't have a record that God answered him in that moment. Jesus trusted God as he walked toward his death. Jesus hoped that God would raise him even from the dead. And now Jesus invites us to praise him while we wait for him to return. See, it's in our savior, our hope in life and death. It's in his life, death, resurrection and ascension that he says the wait is worth it. And it's because of Jesus that we can cry out knowing God always hears us through him. It's because of Jesus that we can trust no matter what happens in our life, God's heart is committed to us steadfast in love. It's because of Jesus that we can say no matter how disappointing or dark this life may seem at times, God will satisfy me with himself. And it's because of Jesus that we worship even while we wait for him to return and make all things new one day. Whatever waiting you are in right now, whatever waiting you are in, to cry out to God, to trust him, to hope to him, and to praise him is a good thing. Let's pray. Father, we do not pretend that life is always easy. We know that life is not always easy. And yet, God, we know that as we wait, we know that as we wrestle with confusion, unmet desires, hopes for our lives, that it's in the midst of that waiting that you meet us, that you satisfy us with yourself, that you remind us you are good and you can be trusted. And God, I pray that we would be assured of that this morning through Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.